Molly Wood, Climate Tech Focused Managing Director at Launch and co-host of This Week in Startups with Jason Calacanis. Welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be an Epic Human. <laughs> well, you certainly fit the bill and um, and glad, you know, it wasn't too far of a trip from you <laughs> being here in Berkeley from Oakland. Didn't even have to cross a bridge. Yeah. I could do this every day. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thanks for being here. Um, uh, by the way, also, thank you for having me on your podcast uh, this week in Climate Startups. Uh, enjoyed that. I've been getting a lot of uh, inbound from entrepreneurs and people I haven't talked to in a long time saying, oh, I saw you on Molly's podcast. And <clears throat> so I thought it was only fitting that uh, we, we could return the favor here. That's great. I love it. It seems like it's becoming sort of a new VC thing to the podcast swap. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, why don't um, it be good to share with the audience a little bit more about launch um, and particularly around your your focus on climate, and then maybe this week in startups as well. Yeah, great. Yes, I like to tell people that I have two full time jobs, but I find that now that I'm in a world that involves a lot of founders, startup founders, no one is sympathetic to that, which is very fair. <laughs> um, so I came to launch in January after a twenty plus something career as a tech and business journalist. Launch is an early stage technology VC fund and we have a couple of educational programs. So we have the Founders University for very, very early stage entrepreneurs, the ones I like to call PowerPoint in a dream. And we invest 25,000 in some of the companies that come out of that 14 week cohort. We have an accelerator that I think is probably best known. That's maybe Launch's best known product is this accelerator that's similar to Y Combinator. It's a $100,000 investment and it's 12 weeks, but it's very small cohorts, super artisanal, hands-on product, seven each um, per cohort. And then we have a fund and our fund investments we make alongside our syndicate of angels. Jason's uh, legacy, you know, history is as an angel investor. And so we have this very large syndicate of, of angel investors who have been part of this kind of investment journey for about a decade. And um, recently we've launched some verticals. So we have a SaaS syndicate and then since I came on in January with a focus on climate tech, which we had not had before as a firm, uh, in April, we launched a climate syndicate. So we have angel investors who are super passionate about this space on board to invest and be a resource for our founders. And we've had a couple climate companies in the accelerator, a couple in the syndicate. It's all happening. It's amazing. Exciting. And, and then you, you also somehow do a, a, a daily podcast? And we do a six-day-a-week podcast. Yep. Six days a week. Six days a week. Wow. We have a Sunday show. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, it's two, two, jo two jobs. <laughs> it, but you know what? This was the pitch. Like, Jason and I went out to, you know, he comes from media also. So I think that's part of why we resonated. He was, I've known him for a very long time, a little over 15 years. And um, we had this ramen lunch and talked about this job. And he said, basically, we podcast in the morning and we invest in the afternoon. And it has worked out exactly like that, <laughs> except for the occasional trip to Berkeley to podcast in the afternoon. Right, right. <laughs> Sometimes podcast in the afternoon. Sometimes. Uh, well, good. Well, good. And um, 
help, help us understand uh, how, how you kind of interact with the, first off, how many angels are we talking? And then like, how do you, how do you work with them? How does that, how does that all come together? It's a pretty, the syndicate is fairly hands-off from the perspective of the managing directors. I mean, certainly, well, that's not true. I mean, we all have access to each other on Slack, you know, and, and our syndicate members actually, unlike, um, I think there are a couple of syndicates that don't let their syndicate members talk to founders. Our founders and syndicate members really can interact and hopefully the members of the syndicate can be a resource for those founders because a lot of them are subject matter experts. And they um, are, I don't know, sort of like friends on this journey, I guess. It's, it's great to know that at any point I could pop into Slack and say, help, I really need some, you know, I don't know, somebody who understands perovskite, <laughs> you know, solar technology. Um, so they're, they're simultaneously a resource and LPs in a mm. way. So, so you, so you, so you use the um, the angel syndicate <clears throat> for for deal sourcing, for to help with deal due diligence occasionally, and then also to to help uh, with portfolio companies along the way, like uh, after you've made the investment. Is, I that, think, is that the idea? Yeah, all of that is an option, mm -hmm. and then there are plenty of members of the syndicate who are much more hands off. Right, they're they're mm -hmm. investing partners. We send them deal memos, you know, a couple times a month. I think we do somewhere between two and four deals a month, and they throw up a hand and say they either do or do not want to participate. So it's sort of, I think it's up to the syndicate and up to the syndicate member to determine how much they want to participate. I see. In the actual, you know, and, and some are really active and will suggest deals to us and some will go to for expertise, but I wouldn't say that that's the most common interaction. I see. Yeah. And then just, just curious about this. How do you decide, like, let's say you have a certain allocation, right, with a company. How do you decide how much the fund will do versus like the syndicate will do? Like, how do you, how do you balance that? Luckily for me, that's mostly Jason's call. He's the GP. So he just determines. And I, most of the time, though, the syndicate is the bulk of the allocation. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. It's a, I think the goal really has always been to democratize the investing process as much as you can democratize something that is only available to accredited investors or qualified purchasers. <laughs> um, but it's better than nothing. Right, right. Um, and, then, and then help me uh, and, and the audience understand your, your kind of views on, on climate tech. Like, you know, what, what, how, do you, how do you view kind of uh, launches perspective on investing in, in this category? I would say it is evolving by the minute um, <laughs> as I become a climate investor and subject matter expert at the same time. I've been covering climate tech and solutions for a long time as a journalist, um, but now it's about sort of learning how you apply that in terms of a business model and figure out what is investable and uh, figure out the, the place where we're going to feel the most comfortable as a firm. And so I think some of that is happening as we speak. I can tell you that for the most part, since I'm the <laughs> managing director in charge of the climate syndicate, it's heavily influenced by what I am most passionate and currently most knowledgeable about, right? So I have a particular interest in consumer behavior because 13 years of my journalism career was spent at CNET. And so I sort of feel like I really understand consumers, but also the power that they can have when they do a lot of them do the same thing all at the same time. I may be like the last climate person in the world who still believes in the power of the consumer, but I do. Um, 
I am a big believer in measurement. I think you can't manage what you don't measure. So I think of, well, I'll do the third one and then I'll get more into the philosophy. And then the third thing that I'm really fascinated by and think is really powerful is informed, I think, by my six and a half years at Marketplace, which is financial tools. I actually think that there's a lot of investable opportunity in tools that financialize a part of the climate solution universe, whether that's, um, we had a company on this week in climate startups actually that is offering a mutual fund to 401k providers that's divested from fossil fuels. So sort of a S&P 460 <laughs> kind of thing. And that is a really powerful instrument. I think some someone else in the climate space said to me, if you divest your portfolio of fossil fuels, that can have 30 times more impact than going vegetarian over the life of your portfolio. So those are the kinds of tools that I'm just sort of into, I think, because I got really interested in the economy and monetary policy. And <laughs> turns out capitalism really works for some things. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> so we're, we're co-investors in a company that mm -hmm. we can't really talk about right now nope, yet, not but we will. Um, but are there other companies uh, in your portfolio that you want to want to plug or want to mention? Yeah, definitely. On the climate side? I am super excited about the Climate Syndicate's other investment, Clarity Movement, which does is hardware-enabled service. Uh, what do they call it? Pollution sensing as a service. So it's all about real-time, super precise measurement of air pollution, which you know kills nine million people every year, and is a massive kind of side effect of and driver of climate change. And they're just doing incredible work. And it's a really interesting space because there's sort of, there's consumer measurements that everybody's familiar with like purple air. right? And then there's citywide monitoring. And these are these massive stations that are the size of a container on a container ship that costs $250,000 to buy and $100,000 to maintain every year. And so a city might have one or two of those meaning not great air pollution coverage. Clarity sits in between. So they sell to their, the city of London is a customer, UCLA is a customer, so that they can do this much more local, real-time monitoring of air pollution. And it helps, this will be relevant to you, I think, um, it helps solve some of the environmental injustice issues raised by the fact that pollution happens disproportionately in underrepresented communities, affects those communities much more. And the more you can make that incontrovertible with data, the more pressure there will be to fix it. So I love this company's technology, and I also love the way that they're approaching this like really serious problem. They're great. I, I love it. <clears throat> and I, I, will, uh, I will agree that, I mean, all the data shows that the most you know, underrepresented groups and the, the lowest on the economic totem pole are the ones that are are already being most affected by climate change and will continue to. Um, <clears throat> but just on this one, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious and I, and I love the space, um, but what, how, how do they think about business model, right? When you've got, I don't know, I, I don't know enough about Purple Air or like where they're getting those measurements, but like, mm -hmm. how do you think about business model with, with a company like that? So they're uh, effectively a hardware as a service model. Mm -hmm. So they have a pretty low priced set of sensors that they can put anywhere. And those sensors are adaptable to future sensing that they're not totally talking about yet. Mm -hmm. um, and then they sell the real time ongoing monitoring as well as some on the ground tech support to cities or um 
you know, school districts or agencies or whoever wants to install this. I think the way they're thinking about it is that it's the caliber, it is the grade and accuracy of monitoring of a city-sized monitoring station, and it's hyper-local in a way that that purple air can be. It can be very local, but not necessarily as accurate, whereas maybe a big monitoring station is extremely accurate, but a lot less local. They're splitting the baby there at a much more affordable price than the monitoring stations. I see. I see. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, let, let me ask you this, like as a, as a VC investor, right, um, you interact with a lot of other VCs. And what would you say is your style in terms of the factors or the characteristics you look for for a founder or for a company mm -hmm. that you think are like more important to you than maybe to other investors? Oh, that's a great question. Well, this may or may not be um, great for me long-term, I don't know. Because <laughs> what I have found is that I approach almost all of my meetings the way that I approached an interview as a journalist, which is that I really am into the story. And we have these wide-ranging conversations. My meetings are always way longer than some of my coworkers. And I want to understand the all of the future potential about the business, I get super excited about talking about well, where could it go and who else could buy this. And, and then very often I discovered early on, I forget to ask really important things like how are you gonna make money and how much money do you think you might make and you know, who's gonna pay you and why. So I'm working on incorporating some of those, but for me, I think first and foremost, really I'm like making a connection with the founders and I'm getting sold on their story and I hope that works for me. <laughs> sure, sure. Eventually, I do ask them how they're going to make money. <laughs> well, the storytelling aspect. But I'm like, of just it. send me your spreadsheet later. Like, let's just talk. Right. You know? Right. The storytelling aspect is so important um, because I, I, I think very early in my VC career, I was more, you know, interested in the technology and like, how's it different and whatnot. And, um, but yeah, I think what I've realized is that the ability to tell a good story is such a valuable skill for a founder or CEO to have because it's not only fundraising, which is already critically important, but telling that same story to customers, telling that same story to potential employees, it's, it's, it's critical. Um, and, if they, and if they are good at the fundraising, that de-risks the company dramatically. Um, so I hear that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your uh, specifically like what you gained or or what skills you you picked up from media, right? That you think you know you've applied to venture, and how that's that's helped you. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there are ways in which it's a one to one transfer where it's just. There are times in meetings where I feel like nothing has changed about my job <laughs> because it's just have a really interesting conversation with someone who's building something cool and then be appropriately skeptical. And I would say if there's like a single thing that has been the most valuable, it's that I think the key to being a good journalist is being willing to just be a dum-dum on behalf of the audience to ask a question that might be really stupid. And to do that, because you know that someone is out there who isn't going to understand what you're talking about, that there might be a lot of jargon or there might be complicated 
concepts or somebody's talking really fast and that it's your job on behalf of your audience to step in and say, hey, I don't understand this at all. Like, I don't understand a single word you just said. Please explain it to me like I'm five and then maybe do it again. And there's this fascinating uh, story about this fortune reporter, Bethany. I'll look, I'll look it up later and get back to you. But mm-hmm. she um, she went to an Enron earnings report, uh, you know, earnings press conference. And she sort of kept asking over and over like, hey, how do you? And this was right at the time of Enron's peak, of course, the big energy company that collapsed. And it was a big scandal for people listening who are not as old as I am. <sighs> and she was saying, OK, there's just one more thing that I don't totally understand, though. I just have one more quick question. How do you make money? <laughs> right? And she was bold enough to be the only person in the room to say, I don't understand how you make money. And the answer to that question was so vague and wandering and illuminating that she started going around asking all these other people, like, hey, do you know how Enron makes money? And it turned out no one did. And she wrote this big cover story for Fortune. This is like legendary in journalism world in 2000 that really started the downfall of this company. So what I find is that the more I can do that, and and actually as part of our Founders University and the Accelerator, I do a course for our founders on narrative building and narrative development for investing, hiring, and storytelling, because you need your narrative, like we just said, for all of those things. And a huge part of that is that if I am saying to you, how do you make money? What is your business? What is your business model? What is your product? I can't believe how many founders I meet with who can't totally tell me what their product is. And so the the, the ability, the willingness to just look like an idiot in a room, I think is probably the most valuable thing that I brought from journalism. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, first off, I, I've, I've been known to tell people my job is to ask dumb questions. Like, <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's like, and and I think it's true. Um, and I also think that, you know, we 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 are lucky in that we get to interact with these brilliant people all the time, right? And they can be brilliant on a number of different dimensions, right? <clears throat> but I feel like we've probably both gotten to the point where it's if if this brilliant person, clearly brilliant, is trying to explain something to us and we don't understand it, it's like, well, then there's there's an there's an issue with right. the with the with the storytelling or the way it's being communicated, and um, and I, I suspect that your your ability as a as a journalist to like ask those like probing like skeptical questions of like, well, well, how does that really work, right? Because wouldn't this also be true or something like that would come in handy? Because that's how I feel like I you know, I'm, I'm getting to it. Um, but it's it's tricky because you also have to be building a good relationship at the mm-hmm. same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very it's very reportery in those ways where you're 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 making a friend, but you're also restating is very helpful, you know? So wait, do I understand this correctly? Is so you make a sensor and then the sensor costs this much and then the service around the sensor costs this much and then how long do they pay for that? You know, and you're kind of, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting dance. And I don't want this to be mistaken for, um, I want a great storyteller as a founder, right? There's, there's a difference. I'm not arguing for more Adam Newmans, 
when I say that I'm interested in someone's story and their narrative. And in fact, sometimes the more awkward and and unpolished someone is, the the better their story is, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm really talking about real stories, not the like BS super slick kind. <laughs> right, right. That is important nuance. I, I think the other thing I think about <clears throat> on this topic is, again, not necessarily how smooth the, the story is, but if I, if, you know, it, when I get to my 20th question that I've asked, right, if the founder has, has thought about it, right? It's like, oh yeah, I thought about that. Great question, thought about that. Here's my current thinking on it. Not necessarily that they have the answer, mm -hmm. but I do like to see that, that kind of like wide library of, of thinking that has already been done that, that proves like, okay, I'm all in this. This is what I think about 24 seven, 365, you know, for the last few years. And this is all I wanna do. Yeah, yeah. my first founder, will always be my most precious when is as just wrapping up our accelerator Anukampa Freedom Gupta Foner and she's got this company um, that does zero waste grocery delivery spring eat spring is the company and that you know obviously she came into the accelerator into this big headwind of zero grocery which was doing a similar thing in the Bay Area shutting down and it's a it's a an operationally difficult business grocery delivery no matter what and then what they're doing is sourcing hyperlocal goods from wholesalers packaging them in glass or stainless steel containers that they've actually in some cases fabricated themselves like berry containers that don't smash things and they deliver it to you in evs once a week and then you have this beautiful instagrammable pantry and then you give it all back and get new groceries and it's one of those businesses that one, I want to exist more than anything. And everyone I know is like, I would pay so much for that. So let's go freedom. She goes by freedom. And, <laughs> but on top of that, she is that founder. She uh, did a TED talk on the little coffee sleeves. She kind of popularized the idea of how important it is to recycle them. She lives a zero waste life with her husband. There aren't even any trash cans in their house. And I have never met a single, she's an Indian immigrant and she's like, I grew up in India and I could not believe when I got to America, how much stuff we throw away and how ab absurdly wasteful this society is and just is like a woman on a mission. And she knows everything about cutting excess waste out of your life. I've not like, if anyone is gonna make this business succeed is going to be this living son of a human who knows everything. I mean, you, you could ask her, 20 million questions and she would have the answer. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, it sounds exactly like what I was thinking. Oh, I, I did want to ask you one more question about um, <clears throat> how about uh, the recent news that uh, New York State is following California in eliminating fossil fuel uh, driven cars? I mean, how amazing is this moment? This is incredible. Like there, are, there have been setbacks, you know, around. <laughs> <laughs> energy lately, <laughs> but this moment is incredible. And every time that happens, markets are born. You know, this is where I realized I really went from, I went hard from public radio into venture capitalist, but you see things like that happen and you realize that everything about procurement just changed. Everything about charging just got supercharged. I didn't want to make that pun, but I couldn't come up with another word. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal moment. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and it's you know it's nice to see the first the first domino fall and now the second domino fall because you know other states are taking a look 
and saying, well, why wouldn't we do that? And yeah. would that help us get more manufacturing in our state? Um, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's. Inc- I mean, it really is incredible. That and the investment, the what are we calling it? The Inflation Reduction Act, or as I like to call it, the Climate Bill. But the IRA and actually the infrastructure bill that passed or that everybody forgot about both have a ton of incredible incentives in there that just, again, allow companies to be born and thrive and solutions to exist that maybe wouldn't have had a chance before. It's a really, it's actually an exciting time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think that legislation is like the biggest boon to climate tech investing, whether from a VC perspective or beyond in history, mm-hmm. period. Now, do you think we're recession proof? climate tech investing? Uh, restate that question. What do you mean? So if there is a, a broader downturn in venture funding as a result of economic recession, I sort of feel like climate tech investing could be recession resistant. Proof is a, is a strong word, but it's not a problem that's going away. Right, right. Um, I feel that, rel- I mean, I, I draw from the context that I've, I've had, you know, over the last 10 years <clears throat> of climate tech investing and um, where we are today is light years from where we were 10 years ago from climate tech uh, investing. And I feel like, so it's kind of like we went from one to a hundred and whether or not we end up being at 90 or 110, it's the the difference is is just so staggering. We've made so much progress that it's it's uh, de minimis. I've also I've also the way I've thought about it is <clears throat> climate tech investing. It's like it didn't get to the highs of the high during like the 2020 and 2021 in terms of valuations, and nor do I think it's going to get to the lows of the low like now when other you know there's other types of companies that are that are taking a real hit. Mm-hmm. So I do think we are you know resistant. Um, to that. And plus, there's just been so much money raised um, at the growth stages for climate tech that 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 money's earmarked. It's 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 got to go into something. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not I'm not too worried about it either. Great. Agree. <laughs> agree to agree. Um, let me let, let's let me ask you a little bit about you. Um, and so as I understand it, you grew up in a in a unique place in the United States. Uh, both Montana and North Dakota, but maybe you could just walk us through your your upbringing and and kind of how that's uh, kind of influenced you. Um, this is the awkward part where I have to talk about myself, and it feels so weird, but I will try. I did grow up almost exactly equally in Montana and North Dakota, so I lived zero to ten in Montana, and then we moved to North Dakota when I was ten, and I went to middle school and high school, so through eighteen, and then I went back to Montana for college, and I have a parent still in each state. So it is this very strange, I'm a Gemini. I'm like, I guess this is always how it was going to be. Just (laughs) duality everywhere. (laughs) And I 100%, although I moved away after college and I ended up in Oakland by 99. So I've lived here now more than twice as long as I lived in either of those places. Um, Because I still have family there and I'm back there a lot. It's it's kind of one of those things where as you get older, you think of, lot more about what made you who you are. And so I think as much as I thought I had left those states, it is only after sort of growing up all over again in the Bay Area that I realized how much I'm influenced by it. I mean, 
you know, we were, we did not have any money at all. And my sort of family history is like farmers. And so what I find is that I have this extremely, and then Montana, when I was growing up there, it's a lot more conservative now than it was. It was always a very libertarian state. I was actually telling my son today that Montana was like, we had it written into the state constitution that if the federal government was ever had ever lifted the speed limit, the federal speed limit, that Montana would immediately revert to no speed limit because they considered the speed limit and even seatbelt laws to be such extreme government overreach that they wrote it into the state constitution that should those things ever go away and the, the boot of tyranny be lifted off the state's neck, that by God, you could drive as fast as you want. And so I graduated college. My first job out of college was with the Associated Press. And my first posting, they're kind of like the army. They just sort of move you places. So my first, I started in Helena, Montana, where I was born. And one of my jobs as a baby cub AP reporter was to every night at 11 o'clock call the sheriff um, and find out the highway deaths for that day and report them. That was because the AP sort of, you know, it's a wire service. We did like lottery numbers and fatalities. And so I would call and get the fatality count and it would be, you know, one person from Montana and 11 people from some other state who had just come into Montana because this because the federal speed limit was lifted. And for a number of years, Montana had no speed limit. And I so, didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> like, it was Whoa. crazy. So people, this is the late 90s. So people would just roll into Montana like it was the Audubon, hit a moose, you know, drive off the highway, just getting killed left and right. I don't mean to be insensitive, but like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. If you hit a moose, you are gonna die. Yeah. They're very big. So um they eventually had to put a then they then they had this <laughs> this rule that they called reasonable and prudent, which was if you're if it's like sunny out and the roads are dry, then you know, kind of make your own call. But if the if the, the highway patrol doesn't think it's reasonable and prudent, they might pull you over. Finally they put into a speed they put an actual speed limit in effect, but it was like seventy five. <laughs> so this is I mean, I'm a freaking cowgirl, Joe. Like, I don't like to be told what to do. I get this sort of instant temper. And I really think that some of that is just this like Montana libertarian thing. And then the North Dakota part is just like, I was, I grew up in a red state. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, there's a pragmatism in there that was really informed by that childhood. Now, granted, my mom used to joke that she was one of 50 liberals in the state. You know, she ran <laughs> for the state Senate as a Democrat. So <laughs> she worked with runaway and homeless youth. I mean, certainly my upbringing was not um, not red state at home. Right. Right. Say. And uh, that must have been quite a transition moving to Oakland. Yeah. Although I had gone to a, like a four year liberal arts school. And again, I mean, I was raised my mom did this work with runaway and homeless youth. And at some point in high school, after I think getting into a little trouble myself, I sort of started working with her. We did, I did HIV AIDS education on Native American reservations all throughout high school. And in college, I worked at a shelter for abused and neglected children. We traveled a lot. Like she took us to DC to conferences all the time. So I didn't feel, I didn't feel like Oakland was a super dramatic shift. I think I had a lot of window growing up into the hard realities of life. Mm. Mm. It was a bigger city. 
And my truck did get stolen on my second day here with all my stuff in it. Oh, no. So that was, <laughs> <laughs> welcome that was to a Oakland. real welcome to Oakland moment. Exactly. <laughs> okay. That's, that's wild. Um, yeah, no, I do. Weirdly, I do um, identify with that, like, don't like being told what to do thing, even though I grew up in like New York and Connecticut. Um, and I, I didn't, but I never felt it until I moved to Canada. And uh, they just have a little bit of a different vibe. Like they don't, they don't value individual freedoms as much. Like, so for example, my, <clears throat> my landlord uh, would, would go through my mail because and he and, and I was like, why are you why are you touching my mail? Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, if there's, you know, ads or things like that or flyers, like I just get rid of them. And it's just what I do. I was kind of like, OK, but it's my mail. And then and then and then he went through my trash to make sure that um, I was recycling properly. And I'm like, why are you touching my trash? Like wow. that is mine. Like and, you know, and it was just but the philosophy was totally different because it was like, well, this is better for everyone, you know, and this mm-hmm. is just, you know, as a community, we don't want the wrong things getting into the wrong recycling bin. And I was like, I didn't know how American I was until <laughs> <laughs> somebody was up in your freedom. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I actually just need to check myself here because my feelings about Canada are so strong that I could get in a lot of trouble. Oh, really? Yep. yep. Okay. Well, I'm, I was going to ask you about something controversial. I'm 100% so. with you. Yeah, exactly. And that controversial <laughs> thing is going to be like, I hate Canada. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what, what's, what spurs that for you? I mean, Montana is on the border of Canada. Is I know. That, is and North Dakota is also very Canada. And so it might be, it could be a little mm. bit influenced by that. I went, I will tell you this story that illustrates it. Okay. Without, and, and then without going, you know, it won't get too personal. It's just... Here's what happened. And by the way, we, we love Canadians. We like Canadians. Canadians are lovely. <laughs> Everyone thinks they're nice, but it's really just passive aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear the story. <laughs> I went to Vancouver for a video shoot. So I was with CNET and CBS bought CNET about, I don't know, seven or eight years into my time working there. And so they sent us to <clears throat> Vancouver with a video crew to do a shoot on the set of a show, a CBS show that they were taping up there. And because it was like techie. <laughs> Go talk about the technology sure. of the CBS show. It was, you know, <laughs> some advertorial. So we get to Vancouver, which I'm told people love. That's, that's, where, I, that's where I live, by the way. Oh. Vancouver. Okay. For three years. Well, I cannot wait to get to the traffic part of this story. Okay. So they, I mean, it was just the whole, it was a whole candidate experience at first, right? They impounded our gear because we didn't have the right permits and... We were like, we're a news crew, and it took a really long time. We sort of had to maybe bribe some people a little bit to get it. You know, I mean, they were just like, oh, there's this fee, and then a whole bunch of papers that go along with the fee, and then somebody will eventually be back from lunch to give you your stuff and <laughs> all that. So I'm, we're driving through Vancouver to get to our shoot location, and there is not, you're probably familiar, there's not, to my knowledge, a, a road or highway that goes through or around the city. Correct. In any efficient fashion. No, zero. Yeah. So one, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Why? And then two, I pull over on the side of the road because I'm like, there is no way I'm doing this correctly. There's no way there's not a road that just goes from point A to point B. And there's all these like speed bumps. And I'm thinking I am in the wrong location here. So I pull over to look at Google Maps. 
on my phone and see where I am. And I look back, I look up in my rearview mirror and there's this huge white truck behind me and I'm like, it's the Mounties. You've got to be kidding me. But it's not the Mounties. It is in fact the first in a line of many cars that seeing me pulled over on the shoulder because there wasn't really like a big shoulder, evidently assumed that there was some kind of obstacle. And so they queued up behind me like a bunch of Canadian sheep with nowhere to be. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? This country has nothing but time. And I, I am too type A for it. <laughs> yes. I would have said that I was a, a happy type B or type B plus before I got to Canada. And then yeah. I realized like, no, no, there I'm you the go. worst. There you go. Exactly. It's like you see yourself in, a, in one lens, right? And then you go to a new, new place and you're like, oh, wow, I'm really this kind of person. Um, yeah. So the backstory is that, <clears throat> this is my understanding or what I was told, is that Vancouver purposefully like voted against any sort of like major highway because they didn't want the city to become like a commuting city where like other people, where, where people like live outside of it and then they just drive into work. They wanted people to like live and work there. Hmm. Again, it's like you can kind of see that logic. Um, but then they they suffered from this other problem, which maybe you know of, is that um, because of where Vancouver is situated um, in the world and because of their historic, I don't know what it's like now, but historic immigration policy, <clears throat> basically what you had is a lot of wealth from Asia that would come over and either live there or just buy property. So the famous quote that I heard was that in Vancouver, 30% of the downtown apartments were owned and unoccupied. Wow. Right? So it's just like someone saying, oh, I'm going to buy that condo. Yeah. I'm not going to live in it. I'm not going to rent it out. I'm not going to bother. I'm just like holding it because I know it's going to go up in value. And that's why the the, the real estate prices in, in Vancouver are astronomical, especially like objectively, mm -hmm. but then especially relative to the 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 living you can make in Vancouver, right? Because there's not a ton of industry there, Wow. right? So unlike the Bay Area where it's like the cost of living is high, but also there's all this opportunity. The tax salaries are pretty high, right? So, <clears throat> so it, it created this really challenging situation for a lot of people that I knew had grown up in Vancouver who said like, wow, I grew up here, but I can't live here anymore, mm -hmm. right? And I can't live outside and commute in because we have this super elitist policy of no roads. Right, right. I don't want I don't want a two and a half hour commute either. So it's a real sticky situation. Fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. By the way, I also wanted to say that, and I think I told you this already, but so I lived in North Dakota. Yes. And <laughs> Which I cannot, I mean, I cannot, I don't think that has ever happened. <laughs> In all of the time I've been in Oakland that I've had a professional conversation with someone and been like, wait, what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I always famously said I'm the only VC that I've ever met that lived in North Dakota. But like you take, you know, the crown because you you grew up there effectively, you know, so so kudos to you. OK, so recently um, but we are in a very small club. We are in a teeny little club that is getting bigger. I was recently connected through someone I went to high school with to a social entrepreneur in North Dakota who is trying to connect the North Dakota diaspora, such as it is. And North Dakota evidently has uh, the 49th largest sovereign wealth fund in the world as a result of all that oil and gas money in the Bakken. Hmm. 
And they created a fund because they're such practical savers to kind of reap some of the profits of this that's now gigantic. And they're looking to create an innovation economy in North Dakota and fund entrepreneurs who are from there. And so I've been connected and I met like a super big wig VC here in the Valley who lived in North Dakota for the exact same eight years that I did. No way. Crazy. Wow. Yeah, who knew? Club is growing. I know, it's all coming together. (laughs) (laughs) The North Dakota takeover. Let's go, Joe. What? Okay, let, let, let's let's get to your uh, your vast media career. Um, just you, you kind of started you, you started uh, talking a little bit earlier about the AP. Mm-hmm. So uh, my understanding is you've either worked at or written for New York Times, Wired, CNET, CBS. I mean, just like walk us through like your evolution in media and like kind of how how that career kind of unfolded leading to today. Yeah, it's very accidental that I guess I only ever worked for national brands. A friend of mine pointed that out to me. He's like, did you always set out to just only work for national brands? <laughs> Which I did not. So, yeah, I was I was lucky enough to get this AP job out of college, I think was sort of the origin of it. I went to college for creative writing, just wanted to be a writer. Quickly realized, type A, that I evidently am, that that's not a job. <laughs> <laughs> It's a job for some people. For a lot of other people, it's just therapy. <laughs> there was like a lot of crying in these classes. It was terrible. And then I met this really cool. And I also didn't, I am. I think of myself as a creative, but I'm not a generator of stories exactly. Mm-hmm. I didn't have some well of stories inside me that I wanted to tell. And I met this cool woman who was the editor-in-chief of the daily newspaper. So the University of Montana has a daily newspaper, which is effectively a Votech school. It's phenomenal. And it is actually considered a really good journalism school as a result because you're doing the work. And so she was just so fascinating. And she kind of made me realize that you could do all of the same writing and storytelling, but that you got all the stories from other people. It's the greatest job ever. You just ask people you know, questions and get to know them and talk to them and you write it down. And it's, and there is an endless, infinite reservoir of stories out there to tell. So I switched over to journalism, ended up becoming the editor-in-chief of that paper. And while I was in college, I covered the Unabomber arrest. This is my flashiest clip in life still. (laughs) He was, because they found him in this cabin outside of Helena in the middle of nowhere hiding out. And so there I am, you know, college kid with a couple of photographers with like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, all these people in brand new boots and jackets standing in the winter, you know, on top of this like mountaintop and (laughs) saying, you know, who are you with? And I'm like, the Montana Kaiman or the Daily Student Newspaper of the, you know, (laughs) it's a Salish Kootenai word for messages. Um, I, and then it is not, it was not uncommon, I think, for the AP to hire. The, the editor-in-chief job was a stepping stone into Associated Press. And that was, you know, that's, once you have something like that on your resume, the AP is also like boot camp for journalism. It's just fast. You know, you're just inc- turning out content incredibly quickly. You're doing all kinds of sourcing, all kinds of reporting. I did some sports reporting. They sent me all over. And then I ended up, I was in Omaha, my third post. So I went from Helena to Seattle. Big city. And from Seattle to Omaha mm-hmm. with the Associated Press. Although I will say Omaha, lovely town. I had a great experience there. Really good food, lots of great music, really friendly people. 
But then I got a call from a friend of mine from college who was like, hey, I'm back in Oakland. He lived in Oakland uh, and I need a roommate. What are you doing? I said, well, I'm in Omaha, so I'll be there in 30 days. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> it wore off pretty quickly. Packed up my truck, moved to Oakland, got a job in tech journalism. Because if you moved to the Bay Area in 1999, no matter what you were doing, it was going to end up tech somehow. And so I got a job at a magazine that covered Apple and that and, you know, went to the Steve Jobs keynotes where he was unveiling the iPhone and the Bondi Blue iMac. And it was a really incredible time to have accidentally become a tech journalist. So I was at that magazine for about a year and a half, I think. By the end of it, I was writing the whole thing. So it was a whole other kind of boot camp in terms of tech journalism. And then I took a job at CNET because it was sort of the only online publication that I had come across that wasn't riddled with typos. It seemed like an actual professional operation. <laughs> CBS bought us. And then I will always credit this CNET experience because I was just a trained print journalist. But CNET was kind of simultaneously covering the tech industry and helping to sort of invent big parts of the digital media industry as we know it today. Like we built a video portal contemporaneously with YouTube. Like we were briefly competitors and it was one of the first online video portals alongside YouTube. I did the first commercially successful podcast on the web, like full stop. There was podcasting happening, but we started in 2005. You know, it was really well sold. It had a big audience. We did every day for six years. We did, we built, I don't know, interface things like the river, right? The, the endlessly scrolling river. We were like among the earliest to do that. So there was this kind of wonderful combination of being an entrepreneur. Like I wrote a business plan for a 30 minute broadcast quality web show in 2013, I think we were doing this. We shot all over the world and, you know, I hired my own staff and it was a, it was just a really cool experience that also taught me all these other forms of journalism, podcasting, video, TV. I did a ton of TV with CBS, that kind of thing. And then anyway, yes, after I had done every job that CNET had, I finally left. I went to the New York Times for 15 months of cry every day. And then... <laughs> <laughs> why? Why were you crying every day? Oh, it's just the worst place ever. Oh, why? <laughs> it's, just, <clears throat> it's just not a... Let me just say that all the people who are leaving now because they want to own their own brand or they want to exist sort of separately from the New York Times or they want to actually do content that they think is valuable as opposed to what the Times thinks you should be doing. That was the experience I had there as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then I went to Marketplace um, on NPR, although American Public Media is the parent company. No one knows this. It's not technically NPR. It's APM. And I had a wonderful six years there. And that, but honestly, I started covering climate and climate solutions from that tech lens in 2017 ish, 2016, 2017. And it just became clear that I wanted the back half of my career to be about climate in some way. And that storytelling is incredibly valuable and I will always respect it, but I don't have time to change minds. I needed to get boots on the ground. And I've known Jason a long time and he came along at the right moment with this pitch to come on and do investing. And I said, well, okay, then I'm gonna do climate investing and I want to have this week in climate startups on the, the this week in startups portfolio. And he was like, yeah, let's do it all. And wow. about three months into my job, we had done it all. Wow. It's incredible. That is incredible. What, you know, so you talk about, you know, what it was like <laughs> at the New York Times. No, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. <clears throat> I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant background. So um, I have a couple of questions. So one is, 
I, I'll admit I'm a bit of a Luddite in terms of media, like behind the scenes of media. But I guess first off, like, A, what was that transition for you like from, you know, being a journalist and writing and interviewing to becoming a personality on camera? Mm -hmm. Was that a tough transition or did that feel like natural, like you were just where you needed to be? It was weird. And I think it took me a while to take it seriously, if that makes sense, because this is going to sound that it's hard to say this because I feel awkward saying it. It had it did not seem very hard to me to be video talent or audio talent, which made me think this isn't very hard. I now understand, even though it's hard to say out loud, that that is because I'm pretty good at that. Um, but I think it took me a while to be able to acknowledge that and then start to expand into it and really try to own it and understand that this was really valuable. And like, yeah, there's a reason that CBS keeps calling or flying me out to be on the show um, and then incorporate that in a serious way into my career. Even when Marketplace, when I was having conversations about going to Marketplace and they said, you know, the, the job they had was to be Kai's backup, Kai Rizdahl, who hosts the show. And we kind of have folded in, you know, oh, you'll also be a tech correspondent. I eventually ended up taking over the show called Marketplace Tech and so hosted a national radio show on tech and business for a while. But my initial response to that was, well, that's absurd. I've never done radio. But I had done six years of daily podcasting and I had been a guest on Marketplace and who knows what else radio for the intervening 15 years. Like there was no reason that it was ridiculous, but it still took me a while to understand like I'm talent. And also I, did, I specifically did not want to be talent because that is a whole sort of separate road. So I feel like I've spent a long, I spent a long time as a journalist trying to figure out how to be like talent and a producer or talent and still a reporter and not get rid of the thinking that sometimes comes from being talent or even be perceived as, I mean, literally there, we used to work with a guy who would come down the hall and go like, there's the talent. And I would just get furious <laughs> because okay. that's usually a, that's like a talking head, right? So that's that's somebody thing. who doesn't do their own work. In the media, that's a, that's a term. Talent, talent is, is a term. Is kind of the, the person who just reads what's in front of them and doesn't do the actual reporting or investigation or thinking. It can mean that. And I worked really hard not to have it mean that. It doesn't always, and it does a disservice, I think, to the people who, you know, like Dan Rather, I think was a great example. I have a friend who was his producer for a long time. And she was like, you have no idea how much reporting Dan Rather did and, and how much producing. But sometimes when you're, you're the person who reads the news, you simultaneously are the one whose name on the, is on the door that they blame for everything, even if you didn't do it. Um, or you're sort of perceived as just the, like sometimes people would write to me about Marketplace Tech and say, gosh, who writes the show? And I'm like, me. <laughs> but I also learned the value of having an army of incredible producers who generate wonderful ideas. And so it was, it's been this, it, it's been a very interesting, like at some point I feel like I need to write some kind of a little memoir about what it is like to become talent because it's a very different job than the one I started out doing as a journalist. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's really that's really tough for me to wrap my head around, right? Because I've never had that experience, and the only media 
But now really you're talent, though. But that's what I'm saying is like we're, we're doing a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've been doing this podcast for almost five years or four years. And um, it's just us talking, right? So it's not – and there's some prep, right, that happens. But um, I guess it would be different if, if someone was, was writing the questions for me. Um, so I, I guess I, I get what you're saying. I don't know. Is it also like that in the podcasting world or, or is podcasting like a different animal? Podcasting used to be a different animal, but now a lot of podcasts do have producers. You could get one. It would not cheapen your, <laughs> it would not cheapen your brand at all because some of the tension I experienced as talent was the ability to be produced and to have a producer whose job it is to make you the best you can possibly be. We have producers at This Week in Startups who help us find guests. They help us prepare, do research for them. You know, they will give us like the summary of a book that we will also read. It's, it makes your product better. And that in itself is also part of becoming talent, if you will, is understanding that that support is in service of creating a product that delivers a lot of value, right? Like I guarantee that your show brings you deal flow, ours does, and it cements you as a a known quantity in an industry where that really, really matters. And so it's probably like you probably haven't spent a lot of time thinking about yourself as talent, but you are. And that is different. That's a different job from what you do as an investor. Right. Right. Okay. You should totally get a producer, by the way. It really helps. Maybe. <laughs> maybe I will. Yeah. Um, let me ask you just one more question about media, which is <clears throat> to the layperson who's a, a, a consumer of media. I'll put myself in that category for the most part. What do what as an insider? What should we know about like sort of some of the inside baseball of like, you know, how media actually works or some of the like misconceptions people have about like media and how it's actually put together and produced? This may surprise you, but like a lot of white guys are in charge. Media is there. I mean, the, the amount of like insider information about media that's boring, I guess, that my friends and I talk about all the time is probably not relevant. I think the thing to understand about media is that it's a business and a lot of what you see in media is driven by the business incentives behind media. I loved being at public radio because the incentives were completely different from what they were. And I do not mean to imply that CNET or CBS, CBS has its moments of being a sellout, um, or the New York Times, you know, are sellouts in any way, right? But they're advertising supported businesses. And I can remember times where I caused problems for CNET by writing snotty things about Apple that caused Apple to not want to advertise. And the only reason I was in Vancouver doing that shoot was to promote that CBS show. And the New York Times makes a lot of money selling the paper to subscribers of the actual newspaper and also is fundamentally ad supported. And it does, there is no universe in which being a business doesn't change your story selection. So it was really nice to get to Marketplace and be at a place where we were listener supported by incredibly smart people who wanted to be smarter. And so I sincerely felt, particularly on the heels of the New York Times experience, that my job at Marketplace was to be really smart and make other people smarter. And it was incredible. I loved it. 
Do you think that's where media is heading? Or, or Public do you think, supported? Yeah. I think that we are starting. I mean, it's interesting to see how many podcasts now exist on effectively the exact same model as public radio, right? Through Patreon and user donations. I think that Substack and the rise of independent journalism and subscription, you know, subscriptions to individuals are really, really powerful and a very disruptive force, without a doubt. And and there's so little trust in institutional media and so many people saying, you know, I seek out these independent sources and I've got a lot of conflicting thoughts on that as well, right? Editors really matter. Like expertise matters a lot. But I can't fault anybody who says I don't trust the incentives behind these big institutional media outlets because they're businesses. Different kind of question. What advice would you have for someone who's in media that is interested in venture and and is wants to get in, right? Because because yeah. you're not the only example, right, of people starting in media and getting into venture. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I love about venture is like you you have so many different kinds of backgrounds and different styles that where people can be successful. So yeah, what do you think? I would say get yourself on the business desk and start thinking about your stories as business stories. So the, all the time I spent at CNET, I didn't realize I was becoming a business reporter. Even though we were talking about business models, super early ones, right? I mean, I covered internet service providers, for God's sake. There used to be a lot of them. <laughs> now there's like four, depending, you know? Mm. They're all scattered throughout your individual regions. Um, it was not until I got to the business desk of the New York Times and Marketplace that I really started to realize that what I was doing was business reporting. And that all the stuff that I had said about Facebook as a commentator was about targeted advertising as a business model. And that, you know, things that I had thought about Apple and the way that, it, like, I would be like such a populist. I would be so angry at Apple, the way Apple treats its consumers and forces people to upgrade and this and that. And it, it didn't just didn't hadn't made that mental switch to like, yeah, but that's an awesome business. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and <clears throat> that there will, you may encounter, depending on the outlet, that you're with a resistance to thinking in those terms when in fact like every story on earth is on some level a business story or a finance story and i think that's a really valuable lens to put on as a journalist no matter what because follow the money has always been a really important journalistic read it also i think prepares your mind you know vcs love to talk about the prepared mind for the kind of thinking that you'll have to do when you get into this business and just make friends with them. I mean, honestly, I got VC curious because the first thing I did when I started hosting Marketplace Tech was do a big week long series on venture capital because I was like, this is so powerful. It's like this really black box. Nobody understands it. There's you know all these companies that have been VC funded and it's a networking business. So as a journalist, everybody will call you back. <laughs> if you wanna be a VC, start calling VCs. Right, right. <laughs> that's That's great advice. Um, I wanted to shift a little bit to, to some of your kind of philosophies. Um, and you mentioned earlier <clears throat> that you wanted to shift your career towards climate tech mm -hmm. and for the next however many years. What, what do you want to accomplish, um, let's say, over the next however many years you, you define it? Yeah. Um, and how will you know if you've been successful? I will, I will know that I've been successful. The sim most simplistic measure I can think of is that at the end, whenever that comes, you know, if I actually ever retire, which I 
have a hard time imagining because I'm not Canadian. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, If I will have been successful if some of my baby turtles have made it to the sea, you know? I mean, I want to build companies that that last and are contributing solutions and creating jobs. My dad is like so excited. He thinks I'm a job creator, which we are kind of. That's amazing. 100%. I don't, I'll be curious about my gigaton score, but I hope that's not what I'm tracking. Like I have, I think at, going all the way back to the Gemini thing, I think I have a dual mandate in some ways because I came from media and we're still doing media. I want to build great companies. Like, yes, I am 100% committed to finding the Google of climate tech. Let's do that. And also, I want to be the Kara Swisher of climate tech, right? Like, I want us to, I want to shift the conversation to solutions. I have no patience for your problem porn. I want to be ruthlessly focused on solutions. And I think of solutions much like the planet itself as an ecosystem. It would be very easy as an investor or just a person who sees the scale of this problem to to be like distracted by the charismatic megafauna. Like you can only pay attention. So do you know this? I do know this term. Yes. (laughs) Do you know these books, the Expanse series? It's a show on Amazon Prime. I know of it. I, I haven't followed it closely. All right. So a big part of the reason I'm a climate investor is because of sci-fi. Okay. Yes. I'm a big sci-fi nerd. And there's this great, super teeny chunk in one of the many, many books in this Expanse series where this father is talking to his daughter and it's sort of in the future, right? And he's saying, oh, you tried to build this simulated ecosystem and it failed because you got obsessed with charismatic megafauna and you put in like big, mature, beautiful trees and jaguars and elephants. and But if you want to build an ecosystem, you have to have bacteria and bugs and seeds, and you you have to have a layer of foundation on which an ecosystem can be built. And that ecosystem is encompassing of a ton of different things that some are not sexy, they and some don't seem necessary, and they all have to exist. So what I would love to say is that I funded and told stories about a lot of bugs and bacteria. What, what science fiction is most pertinent in your in your journey that made you care about climate tech? It uh, there was a little passage in, I mean, I. It's kind of one of those where I grew, you know, I think that I think we're of a similar age, maybe, and mm-hmm. it's like the climate crisis was always there. We were talking about the hole in the ozone. It had become this like drumbeat in the back of my head that was really hard to ignore. And two things happened at the same time. One, I was reading um, Kim Stanley Robinson is this sometimes called cli-fi author. And he's been writing for decades. He's written a ton of books. He wrote this Mars trilogy that really actually is an ecological story. But he increasingly has gotten more and more explicit as a writer about climate change. He wrote this book, Ministry for the Future, that everybody's reading right now that's almost like a manual for how to deal with climate change. You should totally read it. But he wrote this book called New York 2140 that takes place in 2140 in New York City after uh, the city has has experienced two successive 50-foot levels, uh, 50-foot sea level rises. And it still is like the center of global finance. It's kind of this weird book about climate change and global finance. And he has this kind of throwaway line in the book about how the buildings in downtown Manhattan, lower Manhattan, are coated with this diamond 
coating to keep the water out so that they can just keep living in them and still doing business. And it just sort of stuck with me. And then I was having a conversation with my hairdresser, who also cuts the hair of this world-famous climate scientist, Inez Fung, who works at Berkeley, Cal. And she was saying that we had really reached a tipping point. This was many years, long before she wrote this in the most recent IPCC report, or I think she's not done, she's not writing them anymore because she has turned her career toward this question of what comes next. Because we really, as we now know, are not going to be able to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Like there's a level of warming that's baked in that's, even as you and I are talking, wreaking havoc in South Carolina after destroying huge chunks of Florida. And she made this sort of comment that it was an engineering problem now. And somehow those two pieces of information just came together in my brain and made me go, this is my story. Like, finally, I can cover this from a tech perspective. And I actually started looking into it as an adaptation and resilience story. Like, a, I called the series How We Survive, which was really on the nose. Like, okay, well, if all this is going to happen, what is the version? Who's building the diamond coating for the buildings? I would say the piece that I <clears throat> that really resonates with what you're saying is this um, this I've never heard this term, but pr the problem porn. I think uh, I made it up. <laughs> did you make it up? Yeah. I love it. I love it. I, uh, it's my favorite thing about these podcasts is like when I learn a new a phrase. Let's just um, make it a thing. Yeah. Hashtag problem porn. I don't Ser want to hear it. Seriously, because mm -hmm. I always get so annoyed with, you know, all these, um, you know, climate focused people, whether or not they're investors or not. It's like, if we don't do anything in the next, you know, six months, like we're all, you know, and I'm just like, Okay, we've we've heard that for so many years and it I actually feel like it's counterproductive because when people hear that they think, well, I've been hearing that for 5 years and you know, I, I haven't seen that happen or I haven't or, or like how can you prove it? Like I like to flip it, you know, totally the opposite direction, which is, hey, we have a huge opportunity here to create a, an entirely new industry that can be US centered, American-made, U.S. manufacturing, and, and the investment opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, some people are calling climate tech like a $100 trillion market. I mean, yeah. that to me is way more compelling than, hey, we're all going to die and, you know, we need to do something about it, but I can't tell you when or how. <laughs> or like, And I will reject any solution you bring me if it's not sufficiently, like, pure or perfect or, or cool enough. Like, I think... It's a, it's, I'm seeing it in VC already. And I think I've been a little guilty of it. Like I came in very starry eyed, like, I just want to fund real stuff and hard tech and this and, you know, when in fact, some of that is charismatic megafauna, right? Measurement and metrics and databases and dashboards. Those are bugs and bacteria. Those have to exist. Right. And that there, there can't be this sort of like purity test for what is or is not climate investing, because the truth is we don't know what's going to work. I'm at the early stage. It's a lot of baby turtles. We got to try everything. To support that, you, you, just looking at recent history, what unlocked the solar industry? It was finance. It was, it was an innovation in fintech and, and a business model. Yeah. So I, I, I totally agree on that point. And, and that's a perfect example from, from my perspective on like the bacteria. It's like, oh, this little tweak of how do we finance these solar? And then all of a sudden it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, What's something you believe that other people don't? 
What's your most contrarian opinion? I don't think pandas are real. <laughs> I mean, I'll get to a serious answer first, but I legitimately am not 100% convinced that pandas are real. So They're too cute. Have you seen them in person? I mean, I've, I've either seen extremely advanced animatronics projects or little dudes in panda suits. Because <laughs> there is no way that that cuteness is a real thing. Okay, okay. It's not good, buying it's it. It's good to be skeptical. <laughs> do your own research on the panda question. <laughs> um, I think that as of late, I'm thinking a lot about, this isn't even like, this isn't even that tricky, I don't think, or I don't know. When I think about the society and the culture, I think we may need to figure out how to separate as we look at finance and financing and investing. I can't believe I'm gonna say, it. I think we might need to figure out how to separate the E from the S and G. Ooh, mm -hmm. same, same more. We have somehow, we need to do social and governance. We need to do climate. We can, we will not solve social and governance before we solve climate. And if we make that our blocker to solutions, we won't get them done. We won't solve S and G. Like we're not gonna maybe, maybe take the G out. We will not solve environmental racism in the time we need to tackle the climate problem. And I am worried that we may find ourselves in situations where we say, we can't fund this climate solution because it doesn't address environmental racism. And that may mean that we don't address climate and that will cause people who are already suffering from climate change to cover, to suffer more. Hmm. Do you have an example in mind? I, Cause I, I, I'm not sure I've ever run into that. Um, that paradox. It's more like, I'm trying to think of an example where a solution hasn't moved forward. Well, I mean, I think interestingly, it became, it came up with the, gr the Green New Deal, which is part of what turned this into a culture war in some ways. And I don't know how we get out of that. I'm certainly not saying that we need to not deal with the effects of environmental racism and that environmental justice needs to be a part of our policy. Mm -hmm. It can't stop our funding if that makes sense. Like we can't say this doesn't have enough justice in it, this solution, when the solution has to apply to the entire planet. And so therefore we can't do it. I just haven't run into that situation, I don't think. Maybe you have. Um, I mean, I think that's what Republicans are hanging their sword on right now. Is like, this is about, this is about culture so we can't address it. Oh, I see what you're saying. <clears throat> you're, you're saying people who reject the S side of it for political reasons mm -hmm. will also reject the E. Mm -hmm. Okay. That there's a degree to which like there are millions of people in this country and across the world. I mean, literally like, did Putin bring it up today? No, that was something else. Who reject the entire concept. Like it's a blocker. I see. For I see talking about climate. <clears throat> Because right. it's become a culture war issue. Now that is terrible and unacceptable. But the question is, how do we, do we respond by that to that by tying these two things even more together? Or do we say climate is a crisis that addresses every, that, that affects everyone, full stop, right? Unequally, 
without a doubt. But full stop, everyone. Mm. I get it. I get what you're saying. Because you, you have seen some states say, hey, we don't like ESG. Right. Right. And so anything that is ESG related, we're not interested in. We won't do. And you're saying that that sometimes gets attached to anything climate tech related. And so you're you're saying you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And if that if that is a controversial thing, which it, it is. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to decouple those. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting point of view. I get why you're saying that. I guess I I tend to I tend to try to decouple them in my mind anyway, like from the get-go, which is like, you know, for example, we're investing in climate tech, health, inclusive capitalism, and then we also have like an ESG lens that we look at all of those opportunities with. Yeah. So, I always say they're they're interrelated, but they're not congruent. So, but yeah, what you what you bring up is an interesting point. I have to think more about it. But I and I and again, I I also try to I try to take the political side of things as much as I can to the side and decouple that from the business side of things. Right. Now, sometimes you can't do that. Right. Um, <clears throat> but I, you know, part of my personal philosophy around regulations, and I might have told you this, is I I like to invest in companies that have regulatory tailwinds. Mm -hmm like our, our co-investment that <laughs> shall not be named. Um, whereas they, the business can stand alone without the regulatory involvement, yeah. but any regulation that comes on board is going to be additive, Absolutely. right? As opposed to, I think what happened a lot 10 years ago where people were saying, oh, this new regulation's coming and now, um, and now we can build a business that we otherwise couldn't because of this subsidy or because of this thing. And then lo and behold, that regulation gets turned off. Right. And then you have no business. So, so anyway, but I appreciate you taking a controversial Listen, this, viewpoint. Exactly. This is, is this my like personal philosophy that I'm going to die on? No, <clears throat> but it's something that I have been kind of noticing more and more and thinking. And there's this kind of perception that I'm like a hippie investor who wants to lose money or that there are certain things that I maybe wouldn't be able to invest in because the ultimate goal is to, you know, help underrepresented communities. Obviously my air pollution investment one of the reasons I love it so is for exactly that reason. But I also am very familiar that I came from states where people are like, I'm rolling coal until I die. Philosophically. <laughs> and that that and and I mean, literally, like my mom sent me an ad for a candidate in North Dakota who's like, I'm pro family, I'm pro life and I'm pro or I'm pro life, pro gun and pro coal. Pro coal like <laughs> i i don't and so it's this sort of thing where i don't i don't also want to be the person who's sitting here and saying like now nah, we got to get rid of social justice so that we can fix this problem because that lady's not going to come around that lady should come around yeah social justice should happen and addressing the climate crisis from a perspective like a ruthless focus on solutions also should happen. And I'm, I think in my mind, starting to play with like, how do I triangulate those things? Yeah. My, my view on this is there is, I don't want to fall into that narrative trap, mm -hmm. right? Of, Maybe that's of, what of, it is. of saying, oh, there's a contradiction. There's a trade-off. I like to focus on 
Let me show you some real world examples where it's a win, win, win. It's totally. a win for the customers. It's a win for the investors. It's a win for the environment and you know the communities that they exist in. And for people who say, well, no, I'm not interested in any of that climate tech stuff because, because I, I'm not willing to, um, I'm not willing to turn off my air conditioning when it's hot out. And I'm like, I, I don't want to turn off my air conditioning. I don't have air conditioning, but I don't want to turn off my fans or my air conditioning when it's hot out either. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're asking people to do that, that's, that's the wrong equation. Mm -hmm. You've got to show someone, here's a technical solution that's going to be good for you. Right. It's going it's to help better, the company it's and it's better for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I think, I think part of our job as climate tech investors is, is illuminating that for, for people, um, I think that's also true, 100%. I mean, it's people talk long... about the Mr. Burns test, you know? What's this? It's the, it's the, can you make a solution that's good enough and cheap enough that Mr. Burns would buy it? Even if he <laughs> fundamentally, you know, even if he thinks that the reasoning behind it is like, it is ridiculous or, you know, he, he was going to roll coal forever, but then heat pumps came along and they're so much better and cheaper. And there's a, there's a really strong argument to be made there too, which is that if you give, if you create the products that are just better, I mean, I am a lifelong car girl. I love cars. I even love really big, stupid trucks, like a lot. But once you drive an electric car and you're a car person, you're like, oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know I had infinite torque to work with here. <laughs> like, this is better. Right. It's right. a better experience. Right. Exactly. So there's that too. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't, I don't. This is a contrarian line of thinking, but not a contrarian philosophy. It's more like, it's a thing I think we're gonna have to, I, th I think we're gonna have to address it more and more. It's a barrier to regulation, 100%, right? Like, I can't believe we find ourselves in a scenario where across the world, not just in the United States, but certainly in the United States, it's like, oh, if the Republicans retake Congress, they will undo climate legislation because they think it's woke. We cannot pretend that that's not a real thing, and we do have to figure out how to deal with it. Otherwise, all those tailwinds never exist. Mm -hmm. For any Gen Zs that are listening, mm -hmm. Mr. Burns was a character on this show called Simpsons. <laughs> They're not listening anymore because of everything I just said, but, <laughs> but also, no, someone, The Simpsons is still on. I know, I know, but it's... Yeah, yeah no, that was an um, old reference. No, yeah. no, it's good. Uh, actually... Just like two days ago, I was texting with a friend and, uh, and you know, I made a mistake with my calendar and I had to reschedule and he wrote dope, you know, like the Homer Simpson. I was like, oh yeah, we're, we're the same generation. That's awesome. <laughs> my uh, son is 15. He's rewatching the Simpsons. Okay. Yep. Okay. The kids are going to be okay. All right. Yep. That's encouraging. Yeah. That gives me faith. <laughs> um, what would you say is like one uh, transformative experience from your life? that kind of changed the arc of your, whether it's your career or your like kind of personal views? Mm. Other than my hairdresser. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a big one. I mean, actually no question. It's a really simple one. It's when I moved to Oakland. And it's funny because, so I moved here to live with this friend who had been my first love in college and we had stayed friends. Uh, so I moved out here. He introduced me to my then husband. That's why I have a baby, you know, 
he also, who's 15, <laughs> right now is like, not cool, mom. Uh, he also got me the job at the Mac magazine because he was working there as an IT guy. And a few years back, I actually sent him an email that was like, hey, buddy, thanks for my whole life. <laughs> you know, like you never know what person is going to be the kind of the pivotal hinge event that changes everything. I don't know where I would have ended up because I was with the AP and they sent me to different cities. And I don't know that I would have gone back to Montana or North Dakota. Like I had more ambition than that. But I also, I don't, and I would not be sitting here. Like that is a multiverse moment that set me on a completely different course. And it was just that one phone call. And, and I'm back in Oakland and I need a roommate. And you, and, and it was a pretty like instant decision, right? Oh yeah. You? Yeah. Yeah, by the time I had hung, yeah, I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Give me a month. <clears throat> I love it. Yeah. Um, last question for you would be, what- Pandas it, are it, not real. It, it, besides pandas are not real. What? <laughs> How do you know pandas are not real? I'm never coming out of this. I like, <laughs> hate Canadians. Pandas are not real. Climate investing is too woke. Like I am going to hell. I'm gonna walk out of here into hell. What is oh, wrong with me? I love it. I don't think I've laughed this hard on the podcast oh, so far. You're laughing. I'm over. <laughs> you're too big to be over. Um, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice that you would have liked to have heard or would have been valuable for you to have heard earlier in life, what would that be? Man, I think about this a lot, actually, because I feel so lucky I think it would be it would be a couple things the positive version is like a lot of times I say to myself that I wish I could go back to my 14 year old self who was just so lost and unhappy and had such a bad haircut and be like don't do that haircut <laughs> but also I, like I wish I could just go back and say like you are not going to believe what happens like, you're not going to believe how great it gets. So just hang in there. It's going to be our, I'm like literally like weepy. <laughs> because it's really true. And then I would also say, please uh, value yourself more. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to, um, I just, I would just be like, love yourself. Just, just have the faith and your position is valid, I guess, mm -hmm. is a way to put that. Do you feel like you didn't feel that way when you were when you were younger? Yeah, I mean, I think we all go through some version of that, right? Like you marry the wrong person or you take the wrong job because you feel like it's the, th the thing you're supposed to do, mm. you know, that that you can that your convictions are worth having courage around mm. like that. What you feel in your gut is true. Mm. That's the positive version. What was no, that's the bummer version. Oh, that's the bummer version. The positive version is just to go back and be like, girl, we're going to have a Barbie dream house. You got this. Like, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I see. I yeah. see. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I'm like, this is like, you really get there. Do you, do you cry on every podcast? Yeah, I'm a weeper. <laughs> Are you really? I'm a straight up crier. Yeah, everyone knows this, actually. Like, crier. I appreciate it. Music. Commercials, those cheesy like AT&T ads, like if the dad is dancing with the girl and then whatever, I'm, in, I'm done. I, 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 I know what you mean. I get some of that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for this coming awesome. and just being so candid and yourself. Um, I really just appreciate it. Um, how can everyone follow you, um, keep track of you going forward and get in touch? You can yell at me on Twitter about everything I've said on the show at Molly Wood. I'm not, <laughs> just bring, uh, Molly at launch.co is my email address if you are a company and you want to get in touch. And also the Climate Syndicate can be found at thesyndicate.com slash climate companies invest would be investors if you're an accredited investor and you want to join the syndicate and read our deal memos. Um, thesyndicate.com slash climate is where to find me. Awesome. awesome. And this week in startups, six days a week. Six days a week. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for being here and uh, we'll look forward to following up. This is awesome. Thank you. Thanks.